I have with me today an old friend. He's a fellow cop, a fellow author, a fellow commentator. And, uh, and this guy is everywhere and involved in um, so many different things. And I think my favorite thing about him is uh, he can be a pretty funny guy. Uh, Rob O'Donnell, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Beth. So um, I, wanna, I want people to know who you are. You, um, you started with the uh, New York Transit Police, and then they, right, they got absorbed to the NYPD, and then you um, fairly quickly became a detective. Just talk for a couple of minutes about your NYPD career, would you? Yeah, so in 1995, the, uh, the Transit Police and Housing Police were merged into the NYPD under Bill Bratton, Commissioner Bill Bratton and Rudy Giuliani. And, you know, I worked some time in transit. I was working in Manhattan, started my career in Manhattan, you know, the old 42nd Street, the Deuce, you know, where you couldn't walk three steps without someone being shot, stabbed or raped. Uh, we, we really turned that area around to see it go back to where it is now. But we'll get back to that later in your show. Um, but, you know, I ended up going to Queens and, and working for the borough commander as a transit robbery task force, you know, did some great work there. And, uh, you know, moved on to, to pursue my detective's career. I, I was promoted to police officer special assignment, one of 1,400 officers in the NYPD out of the 38,000 uh, that were promoted to police officer special assignment. And then shortly after there, and in 2000, I was promoted to detective. Awesome. And now you worked for NYPD when uh, New York was the safest large city in the United States. I, I was a visitor there. I was a tourist there. And, uh, um, you know, everyone felt very comfortable, you know, walking around, having fun. NYPD did an amazing job of keeping millions and millions and millions of not just residents, but tourists and visitors safe, right? How did you guys do that? Yeah, it, it actually became the nationwide model on proactive policing, you know, the broken windows theory, you know, Bill Bratton you know, partnered up with Jack Maple, who was a transit lieutenant, who was the mastermind behind Comstat, became deputy commissioner of Comstat. You know, Jack Maple was both my lieutenant and sergeant, uh, sergeant and lieutenant in transit, you know, worked, worked with him on and off during those times. So I knew Jack very well. I knew his pro-active policing mantra and what he wanted to look for. That's what they transformed the, the police into. And in order to do that, you need that supportive structure from the cops to the supervisors, to the upper echelon of the department, to the mayor, um, you know, it was, here's your rules and policies. This is what you have to stay in, go out and do it. Be proactive and stop crime. And we'll support you 100% if you do that. And that's what we did and they did support us. And that's why cops were eager to go out there and get those guns off the street, you know, handle those small uh, offenses that they say now have nothing to do with it. It was over-policing. No, it's not over-policing. If someone's gonna commit a robbery in a subway system, you don't pay your fare to get on the subway, you jump the turnstile. So if you arrest somebody for jumping the turnstile, we had people with active felony warrants that were had guns to, to commit robberies that they told us during debriefing that they were going to commit robberies. Uh, so we saw how that worked and we saw the success. When I got on in 91, you know, it was the old 42nd Street. It was the old New York. It just was the start of that transformation. You know, I worked uh, from eight at night to four in the morning at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue all the way to 6th Avenue. Uh, it was bad. You know, it was you learned the job very quickly because you were very active there, you know, walking a beat at that time at night. And to see the transformation to where you can go there with your family five years later, you can let your kids run around. You could, you know, Disney took over most of 42nd Street. You know, the shows and the, the tourism that, that sparked from that. And then that spread citywide. And it, it just became a blossom for New York City. And it became a beacon, you know, across the nation to, hey, we, we need to do this too. And police departments did. 
um, you know, just, you know, Bill Bratton himself was with us, you know, Boston, he was with LA, you know, they, they saw that, that progression that we did, that hands-on laboratory that worked and, and uh, you know, applied it to their municipalities and districts from big cities to small towns, it worked. And we're getting away from that now. And that's why we see we're in the situation we are in now. And I got to tell you, Rob, I was just in New York a few weeks ago and I was, I hadn't been there for probably seven or eight years and I was pretty stunned by what I saw. Um, it was not the New York City of 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't feel comfortable um, as a 62 uh, year old woman walking around. It, it was, uh, I saw so much more, I saw criminal activity, I saw homelessness, tons of gang, I mean, just gang graffiti like crazy. Um, and I saw people that you could tell were fearful, you know, you know how fearful people look. And these were in what you would call night, quote unquote, nice neighborhoods, walking, just looking afraid and not making eye contact and sort of darting between, you know, buildings and intersections and things. It's totally changed from what you describe, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's totally turned around. You know, it hasn't hit rock bottom yet. And I think that's what it's going to need to do before the, the voters of that city say enough's enough, because that's what happened you know, in 91, 92, when, the, when the, the voters, the inner city, the people living in the project said enough's enough. I'm tired of slapping, sleeping in my cast iron bathtub. I'm tired of not being able to walk to the grocery store because of the gunfire. I'm tired of not sending my grandchildren children to school because it's unsafe. It's going to have to get to that point for these voters to think this, this test case that they're doing where we don't need police, we don't need to support the police, you know, gets thrown out the window. You know, we've seen very rapidly the defund the police movement and the effects it has had on these cities, what it's done in just a short period of time and what people need to realize, it's gonna take 10 times the resources, 10 times the money and 10 times the time to gain that ground back. And that's what we need to focus on. And people like you and I who lived through that renaissance of policing where we, we made this nation safe again and the lowest crime in history, you know, to bring that back. They're gonna to have to start listening to the people who have actually done this. When you, when you repeat history and you do the same thing over and over, you know, it doesn't work. And, and they've done this before. In the 70s, you know, there was that anti-police attitude where they, they took funding away from the police and took resources away from them and took, you know, laid them off, you know, in New York City and other municipalities. You know, we can't do that. We need to, my, my thing, and you know, seeing me on social media and when I do my commentary, I'm always open for a conversation about law enforcement. We should always be talking about law enforcement. How can we do things better? How can we improve policies? But we need to start that conversation from a place of fact, not fiction. And where we're at now is this place of fiction where we're demonizing the 99.9% .9 for the 0.1% of incidents that do unfortunately happen. But you know what? They happen at a greater scale in every other profession in this nation. Medical malpractice is the number one killer in America, you know, by 300 to 500,000 but you don't see them protesting hospitals or doctor's office. You know, you talk about drug overdosing and you talk about, you know, simple, you know, slip and fall accidents. We're not, you know, marching in front of, of, of these big major superstores because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, workman comp accidents there. It's just because it's the cool thing now to do. It's the hip thing to go after the police, to target the police, because these politicians in these areas have done this by design. They set up this boogeyman. They need this boogeyman, the police. So no one else is looking at the incompetence of their actions, the things that they're not dealing with, you know, the, the labor issues, the education issues, the, the, the homeless issues, the veteran issues, you know, is if, if they have everyone focused on the police up here, it's like a charlatan, hey, look up here while I'm doing the nice slide of hand down here. 
And that's what these politicians do. That's what they prey on. That's how they win their next election, by making, by creating enemy to you that doesn't exist. And the people need to realize that the police aren't your enemy. The police will never be your enemy. The police will go there and risk their lives, regardless of who you are, how much you make, what religion you pray, or where you live. And we've seen this time and time again. But you have that one or two incidents where the nation can focus on, and mainstream media is to blame too, because they highlight and prey on this because it sells advertising. And this demonizing of the police, these good men and women who risk everything each and every day, they, they need that support from the community. They can't just not have anything behind them while they do this. And it's going to get to the point which we're seeing with, you know, hey, maybe I won't be that aggressive. Hey, maybe I won't rush to that call that fast. Maybe I won't take that extra step to help this person because, you know, if someone records it in the wrong context, I may be screwed. We can't have that. We have to have police officers doing the right thing, following the policies and procedures that are in place and be comfortable that their chain of command up into the politicians will support them if they follow those things. That's all we ask as police officers. Well, and that's the thing, Rob, and we're seeing this as we travel the United States and talk to law enforcement officers is they're, they're not afraid of getting hurt on the job. They're not afraid of getting shot on the job. They know that might happen. What they're afraid of is that they do the right thing and they end up getting fired, indicted, excoriated in the media. And this is all over from not just large departments like the NYPD or Chicago or L.A., but it's even in small rural departments where they are fearful that even doing the right thing is going to get them in trouble. So the proactive policing is going out the window, isn't it, in a lot of areas? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've, I've done a lot of things on social media supporting Officer uh, Matthew Dacus from the La Mesa Police Department, who, who you know, arrested an individual and did what, a what police officers do a thousand times in their career. And when the video went viral of him pushing the subject who jumped up in his face several times, who smacked his hand away in his head at times, you know, they wanted to cry abuse. They burned the city down. They protested. They went to the chief's house and the chief caved. You know, he, he, he was spineless and didn't want to stand up for his person who followed every, even their own use of force experts said he did everything correct. And what does the DA do? Said he falsified his police report because there's a, a one word that they don't like the definition that he used it in or the context he used it in. And it's not... You know, the individual jumped up in his face. We saw the video. He smacked his hand. He admitted he smacked his hand. In California, that's felony assault on an officer. That's what he was arrested for. And, you know, we found out later that this individual, this suspect that they didn't charge then, they charged the police officer, you know, for filing a false police report because nothing else stuck. You know, this individual, the suspect, was arrested three months later by the San Diego Police Department in a high-speed felony pursuit where he crashed his car twice and then fled on foot. And they identified him. His property was in the car. It was his car. They saw him and, and visibly identified him and set up an arrest warrant. And the DA is not charging this criminal, now two-time criminal, with any charges because he's her star witness in the case against Officer Degas in a, in, a, in a process crime of filing a false police report because she doesn't like the context he used one word in that report. It's just ridiculous. These things, this officer... From what I've seen, from what I've heard from peers, from what I've heard from his supervisors, a model officer, the kind of officer that you want out there. He was at that trolley station in La Mesa to do the things that he was instructed to do. It's a known robbery prone location. There's a shopping district there. The, the people from San Diego, lower San Diego, San Diego proper, take the trolley there to go shopping. It's a high robbery time. They know they have money. They know how they have goods when they're coming back. 
They stand there, they loiter, which is illegal in that area, both by the, the transportation authority and the city code to, to loiter on a place without a ticket for that trolley. He did not have a ticket that was admitted, that was proven in evidence. So proactive policing, I approached him sitting there loitering. He got aggressive, he jumped in my face multiple times. And yeah, the call went bad, but it didn't go bad because of the officer. The officer was doing what his department wanted him to do, what his community wanted him to do, what the transportation authority wanted him to do. And he did it. And when this, it went bad because the suspect decided to become aggressive, become adversarial and jump in the officer's face multiple times, which we just do not do. You control the situation as a police officer. I don't care what you do. If it's the common right of inquiry, it's the, if it's, you know, I have probable cause or if I have reasonable suspicion. If I approach you and you invade my bubble and you try to come in my space, I'm going to control that situation regardless of what the content. I don't care if I'm saying hi to you on the street. If you jump in my face and become aggressive, I'm going to put my hands on you to back you off out of my space. That's what police officers do. That's what they should do. That's what they do a thousand times in their career. That's all Officer Degas did. And look what's going on. His career's ruined. He was fired. He's being charged with a felony by the DA, who just wants to make a political name for himself because it happened to have happened shortly after the George Floyd incident, which was a tragedy, but it had nothing to do with Officer Degas's case. That's so well said. And, that, and we're seeing this now more and more and more around the country. These progressive prosecutors um, like Kim Fox in Cook County, like George Gascon in, a, in LA County, um, and, and elsewhere, Travis County, Texas, even, we are seeing these liberal prosecutors that are more interested in prosecuting cops than they are in putting actual criminals in jail. And it's, it's you know, so we've got this de-policing, as we call it. Now we've got de-prosecution. Because here's the thing, cops can arrest everybody and their brother for all kinds of crimes, but if there's no one, no one's going to prosecute the case, nobody's going to keep them in jail. Nobody is going to uh, take that case to trial and hopefully have those felons incarcerated. Crime's going to continue to rise like it is now. Yeah, the, ju the judicial revolving door we're dealing with now with these DAs and not even the, the progressive activist DAs. Your, your regular DAs are just not, they're letting people out with bail reform and everything else. They're not holding these people accountable. They're not keeping them in jail and they're committing more crimes and they know they're committing more crimes. Police are still making arrests out there, even though it's very challenging in these times, as we both know, because of what we've already spoken about. But with DAs just letting people out, you know, I, someone in New York was just arrested 123 times, they said, for a felony assault. He, he punched a, a deaf woman on our way to church uh, yesterday. You know, he was arrested 123 times. What else do you want the police to do? He was arrested 123 times. It's the prosecutors who are releasing this individual out there who's putting your family, your, your viewers' families, cops' families in danger for the next incident that they have to arrest this individual. And it's just, then you put in like a Gascon and, and the rest of these activist DAs who are just utterly insane with their policies. They have their own DAs quitting on them. And these cities are going to crumble all for what? They want to make a name for themselves. If they get that cop conviction, even if it was wrongful, even if it gets overturned five years from now, because that's what the appeals will take, you know, they already made their stepping stone to their next big thing that Soros can fund. And it's ridiculous. You know, I remember, and I, I know you remember, um, on 9-12-01, law enforcement around this nation, um, along with our brother and sister firefighters, we were the heroes. We were, you know, everybody was embracing us. And, and you know, we just celebrated the, or not celebrated, recognized the 20th anniversary of 
9-11-01 and so much has changed, but I want you to go back to that day, uh, 9-11-01. What do you remember about that day, Rob? I remember everything like it was yesterday. Um, you know, I was there that day. I got there, you know, just the first building came down. I got to the Brooklyn Bridge to help evacuate Lower Manhattan. Uh, my brother worked in the towers, so we didn't know where his whereabouts were at the time, you know, and I had multiple friends in emergency service and coming from Manhattan, I knew a lot of the people who worked down there and ended up, you know, being very close with at least, you know, 17 of the 23 that the NYPD lost um, and a few firemen as well. Uh, you know, it, later the next day, I'd say, if you would have placed me on Mars, it would have been the same surreal feeling that I had. You know, that's what it felt like. That's what it looked like. Uh, this is a place I grew up. I, I was born and raised in New York City. You know, I've been there, you know, since I was a small child visiting the Twin Towers, you know, every multiple times a year, at least once a year. Um, it's a place I knew very well, you know, being a transit cop in Manhattan and in NYPD, you know, I knew the subterrain very well. I knew the, the above grounds very well because I also responded as a rookie police officer to the 93 World Street Center bombing. So, you know, we were very familiar with the, with the situation. We were very familiar with what was going on. What we weren't familiar with is cowardists preying on Americans with planes, using planes as missiles. And to see the devastation I saw that day, the very worst in my life, and then that day and afterwards, the very best of us all, from the police to the firemen to the EMS to the doctors and nurses that came down just waiting for patients, to the construction workers and, and to the people who fed us, to the, that came from across the country just to give us a cup of coffee. Um, you know, it was, it was something to live through. I hope I never have to live through it again. But unfortunately, you know, I think I'm the only first responder in America that's been involved with four domestic terrorist attacks on our country. You know, I worked and responded to the 93 World Trade Center bombing. 9-11, uh, I was there and worked for almost a year after the fact. You know, after retiring and moving to rural Pennsylvania and becoming the director of public safety, I ended up personally dealing with the Fort Dix terror plot guys who were practicing shooting paintball guns at trees in our community pretending that the trees were those troops at the barracks because our community was set up very similar to the Fort Dix barracks. And then most recently, the Naval Air Station Pensacola shooting where you know, a Saudi exchange pilot opened fire on our, on our people where my son was in the building, he's a Navy pilot and was in training and called me that he was in an active shooter situation. I could hear the gunshots in the background. You know, he knows I teach it nationwide. He knows I do it and I know it very well. You know, so him and his group that he was with was looking for guidance and then, you know, I, guided them out of the building and what to do if the suspect you know came out of the building thankfully i've been to the building so i had you know a visual of what what it was like so i kind of knew you know what he was what i was dealing with and instructing him but thankfully the exchange of gunfire that i heard on the phone when he called me was the sheriffs and this individual exchanging gunfire and then putting him down again officers who had no clue who they were coming to save they were just coming to save people and that happened to be my son that time who joined the navy went to the united states naval academy um, and that's all he wanted to do because of what he saw as a six-year-old child, what he saw that we lived through, what he saw the funerals, you know, all 23 of my funerals, he stood by my side as a small child. Um, and, uh, you know, to see him grow up to the man he is and the rest of my family, everyone in my family is a person of service. You know, my middle child is a nurse, uh, in, in a BSN nursing program right now. And my youngest child just uh, started the Naval Academy and she's going to be a Naval officer as well. You know, and my wife's an autistic support teacher. You know, my whole family has been raised and grown up around that, you know, help someone else, you know, before you help yourself, help, help other people as much as you can. And your life is that much more fulfilling. 
mostly why we become police officers. You know, that feeling, that gut instinct that we want to run towards that that danger to help others. You know, they do it just in different ways. Uh, and, and there's millions of Americans out there like that. And those are the people we need to focus on. Not your politicians who just create rhetoric, not your people who are jumping on police cars just to to get on TV and not your people looting stores because, hey, it's the opportunist thing to do because the police are dealing with somebody burning their police station down. Um, you know, not these politicians that don't create anything. They just look for their next position. You know, how long can they stay in office? You know, these city leaders and, and such like that. You know, let's start focusing on these people who, you know, autistic support teachers, nurses, you know, your people who work at the grocery store during a pandemic. Let, let's let's focus on those people and help those people. Brian, your commentary is always so spot on. It's so important that people hear what you have to say. Where can people find you? Give us your Twitter handle and your foundation, everything. Let people know how they can reach out to you. Sure, I'm on Twitter at, at O'Donnell underscore R. Uh, that's the best place. That's where I keep most active. You know, I do put stuff on Facebook, but that's, you know, hit or miss. Instagram, I'm still trying to figure out how to use that. You know, I'm old school. Instagram is just a little beyond me. But, you know, uh, at brothersbeforeothers.org, it's a national law enforcement charity that I serve on the board for. We do some great work. You know, just uh, just passed on 9-11. Uh, we've done portraits for all the 23 that were deceased and, and the uh, coin flags for the families uh, that, that uh, you know, your viewers can go check out. It. It'll be all over the news. Um, I also serve on the Piper Foundation, which is Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher's foundation to help first responders and military who've been wrongfully accused, which we're seeing so much more of now. So if you can go to either one of those organizations, brothersbeforeothers.org or the pipehitterfoundation.org, and, uh, you know, see what we do. And if you like us, you know, support us in what we do, because we, we are really doing great work. Bravo, Donald. Thanks for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.